Dr. O has a problem with corporate bullies. In his latest book, The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation, Corey details how monopolies have taken control of much of the tech sector and are unlikely to give it back without a fight. Corruption arises out of monopoly, uh, and, um, and so like we know what our marching orders should be and obviously it's much harder under monopolistic conditions to do something about it. Uh, the best time to have prevented monopolies was 40 years ago but the second best time is now right and uh, we are living at a historically unprecedented moment in which there is interest in public service provision, good governance, good public administration uh, and uh, returning power over the structure of, the, of your daily life from corporate boardrooms into publicly accountable uh, meetings held by publicly accountable agencies. Hey everybody, welcome to the Plutopia podcast. Today our guest is Corey Doctorow. Corey's a science fiction author, activist, journalist, and a ball of fire. He's written a bunch of books, most recently, The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation, which we'll mostly be talking about today. Uh, he wrote a big tech disassembly manual here, and it is really quite a read, and uh, I think a valuable step forward toward whatever it is we need to do. And then um, he wrote recently a science fiction crime thriller called Red Team Blues, which was pretty great, and Choke Point Capitalism, which we discussed in an earlier podcast. And he's written a lot of nonfiction. He blogs every day. He's written a series for young adults, the Little Brother series. Uh, he's written a graphic novel, a picture book called Poesy the Monster, Poesy the Monster Slayer. And in 2020, he was inducted into the Canadian Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame. And Corey's been bringing back muckraking big time. He blogs daily at pluralistic.net, and it's a valuable read. You should all be looking at it. So, Corey, welcome. Thank you very much. What a treat to be back on your show and to be well, among you three. We're so happy to have you here. Um, uh, of course, I'm John Lebkowski, and uh, Scoop Sweeney is sitting over there, my partner in crime, and our contributing editor, Wendy Grossman, has joined us. And uh, I think we're going to start today. I, I just want to mention that I loved your defense of bureaucratic competence. Uh, yeah. Your whole thing about the answer to bad regulation is not no regulation, because I think we're hearing a lot of no regulation, regulation bullshit right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's easy for those of us in progressive circles, particularly leftists, to forget that the attack on uh, competency in public agencies uh, and in, in public service provision started on the right, uh, that the term uh, regulatory capture is not just an innocuous term that uh, describes like corruption, but specifically as part of this theory developed by the most unhinged part of the, the Chicago school, which is the, the uh, public choice theory weirdos, who said that um, uh, because regulatory capture was possible and because big companies are going to put the most energy into regulatory capture, that the only way to avoid it is to just not have any regulators. And, uh, you know, in the same way that, like, if you want to stop arsonists, you could just light everything on fire. And, uh, and, you know, while it's absolutely true that our regulators sometimes switch sides and bat for the other team, uh, the idea that this is inevitable, unpreventable, that we can't have nice things, that, like, the rules that resulted in you not, like, dying of cholera every time you go out for dinner or, you know, having your roof fall in on you every time you slam the door too hard are, like, either accidents, like, somehow the regulator got it right without meaning to, or they're, um, like, a forgotten art like you know how the egyptians embalmed the pharaohs and uh and in fact like all of these things are developed in living memory we know how they work we know how to do them it's a matter of political will uh we know what confounds them it's you know corruption arises out of monopoly uh and um and so like we know what our marching orders should be and obviously it's much harder under monopolistic conditions to do something about it uh, the best time to have prevented monopolies was 40 years ago, but the second best time is now, 
right? And uh, we are living at a historically unprecedented moment in which there is interest in public service provision, good governance, good public administration, uh, and uh, returning power over the structure of the of your daily life from corporate boardrooms into publicly accountable uh, meetings held by publicly accountable agencies. Now, you explain at length in uh, your latest book what's wrong with monopolies, but can you kind of summarize that here? What's, what's the terrible thing about monopolies that we should all be concerned about? Well, I'd say that the two ways to think about the problems of monopoly is the problems with how they work and the problems with how they fail. Um, so monopolies fail very badly. Uh, when a monopoly um, starts to do things that harm people in society, it's really hard to do anything about it. I mean, the normal mechanisms by which we discipline a company, a firm, are either through competition, right? They have to worry about you like taking your business elsewhere or through regulation. They have to worry about getting smacked around and hit with a fine or through some kind of self-help measure. You know, if a company decrees that like they're going to spy on you and they're really obnoxious about it, they have to contemplate the possibility that you might install an ad blocker. Uh, and, and those are the three ways that companies are kept from giving in to the devils of their worst nature. And monopolies don't really have to worry about any of those. Um, when a sector is very concentrated, obviously it's hard for you to leave and go somewhere else. Like consider the possibility that you're like making apps and you are selling things through your app. Well, there's two stores that you can sell your apps through. One is the Google store and one is the Apple store. Both of them charge a 30% commission on every dollar you make in the app. And switching from one to the other doesn't save you a dime. Uh, and that 30%, boy, that's a big number, right? Not just like in real terms, like no business wants to give up 30% to an intermediary, but also by the standards of the industry, right? The, the super monopolistic, incredibly wildly profitable credit card sector charges like 3%. And that's considered to be outrageous, gone up 40% since the pandemic started. Uh, but Apple and Google are taking 30%. So when there's not a lot of competition, um, there's nowhere to take your business. So you can't discipline a company by threatening to take your business elsewhere. It's like Lily Tomlin used to say, we're the phone company, we don't have to care. And, and at the same time, regulation is extraordinarily hard to enact when sectors are highly concentrated on the one hand because like whenever the regulator says hey is this a rule a good one all the companies in the sector are so cozy that they show up and they say no that's a very bad rule and all the evidence in the record from firms that have direct market experience cuts against whatever the rule is going to be so it's hard as like a practical matter to make the rule and then it's just hard to enforce it because they're so rich and powerful, you know, too big to fail and too big to jail. So think about IBM when the DOJ tried to break them up from 1970 to 1982. Every year for 12 consecutive years, the I IBM outspent the entire Department of Justice Antitrust Division on the lawyers they hired to fight them. So the entire U.S. government was employing fewer antitrust lawyers than IBM was for 12 consecutive years. They call it antitrust Vietnam. And so big companies don't really have to worry about regulation disciplining them either. And then because they're so concentrated, right, because they are, it's so easy for them to, to push their regulators around, they're able to get rules that block your own self-help measures. So the open web, you know, you can install an ad blocker if you want. One in four internet users have. Doc Searles calls it the largest consumer boycott in human history. But no one's ever installed an ad blocker for an app not because it's technically challenging to make one, but because you have to reverse engineer, you have to decompile that app first. And if the app is encrypted, then that's a violation of Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and the tools that decrypt it are circumvention devices under the statute and can hit you for $500,000 fines and five-year prison sentences for a first offense. And so it just becomes a felony to add those self-help measures. So here you have these companies, they are unconstrained by the threat of competition, unconstrained by the threat of regulation, unconstrained by the fear of self-help by the uh, consumers and suppliers that they abuse. And so if they ever give in to their worst nature, if they are ever tempted to go astray, nothing puts them back on the path of the straight and narrow. So that's how they fail. Well, how do they work? Well. You know, sometimes it's okay. Uh, it's nice to have a company like Apple 
that curates all the software you can install on your phone and and takes a good hard look at it and does its best to make sure that um, you are not going to encounter malicious software. But Apple's editorial discretion goes beyond what are fairly clear-cut bright lines about what is and isn't acceptable on the platform and goes through to editorial decisions that are really matters of taste, like they block the app that lets you know when a U.S. drone kills a civilian. Um, They block dictionaries that had swear words in them. They certainly block um, OnlyFans and other adult performer sites and uh, drive uh, sex workers into extremely large silos that can compete with Apple rather than letting them go out on their own. And so they end up losing even more than 30%. And so it it, it kind of is a double exploitation for them. And, you know, when the tech companies take action to help you, but um, that action or to help us all as a society but that action is, is misguided, boy, they can really ruin people's lives. In, in the book, I tell the story of a, an anonymous figure who was reported on by Kashmir Hill in the New York Times, who um, during lockdown, his uh, toddler son developed an infection in his urinary tract. And his pediatrician said, send me a photo of your toddler's penis. It's okay, use the secure app to upload it, which is what he did. But his phone was set to auto-sync to Google Cloud. And um, as soon as he took the photo, Google Cloud scanned it, determined that it was child sexual abuse material. His account was uh, terminated. And with it, he lost his phone number because he had a Google Fi phone. He lost his two-factor authentication tool, which he used to log into all of his accounts because that was on his phone. He lost his email and all of his email archives. And he lost every photo he'd ever taken of his wife and child uh, and because they had all postdated the acquisition of his first Android phone. And the San Francisco Police Department's sergeant who was in charge of investigating the claim that he was trafficking in child sex abuse material, when he concluded that there was nothing wrong going on, he had to mail a letter to this guy's house because he could neither phone nor email him because this guy had been completely terminated from modern life. And so the benevolent dictator is not the perfect dictator, nor are they uh, consistently benevolent. And so in the absence of somewhere else to take your business, in the presence of their their fallibility, and in the conditions in which they are tempted to act badly and not disciplined when they do, these monopolies end up being the de facto regulators of our lives. And it's every bad, hacky, right-wing joke you've ever heard about what it's like to have your life ruled over by the DMV, except you don't get to vote them out. Uh, There's no Freedom of Information Act that applies to them. And nobody elected them. And there will never be an election to get rid of them. And they're just there until the public power grows to the point where it does something about them, which can take a long time. See IBM. In your book, you listed... uh uh, you had a list of concentrated industries, and one that I didn't see is the various entertainment inter- industries, which have really mm-hmm. been concentrated. Companies like Live Nation have basically taken over live concerts and venues, yeah. and uh, Clear Channel take, has taken over radio and the streaming uh, uh, services. You can watch those getting sucked up right now. How is that going to be dealt with, uh, or, or can it be? Well, it's, it's you know, uh, you're right. And, and our book, Choke Point Capitalism, Rebecca Giblin and I go into some detail about this. I mean, we are in a world of five studios, four labels, three, or five publishers, four studios, three labels, two ad tech companies, and one company that does all the concert promotion. And so, yeah, this is like not a good market for creative workers uh, or their audiences. Um, and what we see with all of these firms is that when they grow to a certain scale, they don't, um, they can't grow their profits by growing their business, right? Like Google isn't going to become a more profitable company by signing up more people to use its search engine. More than 90% of people search with Google. The other 10% had to do something pretty drastic to opt out of the Google default. 
And so it's not like they are just waiting to see the right Google ad and become a Google customer. There's no way Google's going to get their business. And so the only way Google can grow is by screwing searchers or by screwing publishers, right? It has to, it has to shift value from the captured market to itself. And the same is true of the entertainment sector, which is why you see here in my neighborhood in Burbank so many strikes um, from the creative sector. Last night I spoke to my own union. Uh, I'm a IOTSE member through the Animators Guild because I've written some animation. And we're talking about what the next deal IOTSE and, and, uh, and, and animators are going to get from the studios. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the same problems that we see with tech we see in those markets as well. And um, I think it's important to recognize that if you demonopolize only one part of a supply chain, you don't fix things. Potentially, you even make them worse. I mean, when you think about, like, say, American healthcare, it got to the state that it's in now, starting with the monopolization of pharma, when there was an orgy of mergers and acquisitions that led to a very small number of pharma companies that were able to collude to rig prices on hospitals which led to regional consolidation in hospital markets. They could come to this point where they could say, fine, you want to charge you know, 100x what you used to charge for your chemo drugs. Well, guess what? No one for 100 miles around is going to get them because we own all the hospitals in that radius. So we're going to have to come to an arrangement, which they did. But then, of course, the hospitals turned around and screwed the insurers who form regional monopolies and said, we're not going to pay 100x for those hospital beds. So now you have this like super consolidated supply chain. There are other elements in it I didn't talk about, like, um, you know, hospital beds and uh, uh, pharmacy benefit managers and so on that are just as concentrated. And they're all concentrated in order to stop one another from shifting value. And, you know, the one thing they all agree on is that the um, disorganized flapping ends of that supply chain, which is healthcare workers on one end and patients on the other, are, you know, what's on the menu, that, that patients should pay more and get less care, and doctors should get paid less and work harder, and uh, as well as nurses and other healthcare workers. And um, if you were to just demonopolize hospitals, but leave the rest of the supply chain intact, hospitals would just be on the menu too. We have to, we have to smash monopoly power through an entire supply chain. It's one of the reasons that from the passage of the first antitrust law in 1890 until the Carter administration, the focus of antitrust law was on preventing monopolies from forming because it's so hard to unwind them once they, once they come into existence. But starting with Carter and then especially Reagan and then everyone since until Biden, Biden is different, um, we have encouraged monopoly formation on the theory that monopolies are evidence of efficiency. That if everyone's shopping at Walmart, it must be because Walmart's doing something right. And the last thing you want to do is punish them for being great. And so now we are living in this world where, you know, as the old joke from Ireland goes, if you wanted to get there, I wouldn't start from here. And, um, and, and we're having to grapple with it. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I'm old enough to remember when uh, AT&T was broken up. And, uh, you know, I, as I was growing up, I heard a lot about antitrust, antitrust legislation, trust busters, and so forth. And that really just seems to be like off the table these days. So, so are we seeing, you mentioned Biden, that Biden is taking a different approach now. Are we, are we seeing a hopeful return to the era of trust busters? A hundred percent. Yeah. So so it's important to understand a little bit of the timeline here. Uh, you know, the post-war prosperity, as flawed and uneven as it was, was a time of unparalleled pluralism in the American economy and in the global economy where, um, you know, working people starting with white working men, but spreading out through, you know, other more disfavored minorities uh, and also among women who are obviously a majority um, that uh, they all started to become part of this like liberation struggle. Uh, and you see that all the way up through the 60s and early 70s. And the people on the losing end of that fight were the people who spent the founding of America through the Gilded Age having plebs tug their forelocks at them and being able to, you know, go into the beautiful places without having sharp elbowed pearls that they're, uh, you know, getting in the way. And they didn't never liked it. And they festered and nursed a grudge against this new order and did and schemed to get rid of it. 
And at the University of Chicago, there was this unhinged judge, uh, Justice Robert Bork, who you will probably remember as the guy that Reagan failed to get on the Supreme Court, whose uh, performance was so bad that we actually have a uh, an adjective to describe things that go really badly that comes out of it. We say things are borked if they're really bad. Uh, and, and Bork was a conspiracy theorist. And he said that if you read the statutes, uh, the antitrust statutes, starting with the Sherman Act that you know, Tecumseh Sherman's brother, John Sherman, authored in 1890, but the Clayton Act, the FTC Act, and so on, what you'll find is that actually all of these lawmakers, they loved monopolies. They thought monopolies were evidence of efficiency and that the only reason they wrote these antitrust laws was on the off chance that like a bad monopoly, which might even be a myth, we're not even sure if they exist because maybe markets just make them impossible. But if a bad monopoly ever pops up then uh, and starts to raise prices because of their market power, we should do something about it. And, and of course, the, because of their market power is a really important loophole because when monopolies did form and did raise prices, Bork and his acolytes said, oh, they didn't raise the prices because of their market power. They raised their prices because oil is more expensive or labor is more expensive or, you know, mercury is in retrograde. And uh, the last thing we want to do is punish these poor guys uh, at the moment that they're struggling because of oil prices uh, by, by smacking them around for raising prices. Uh, and so um, Bork, uh, his ideology became ascendant first with Carter and then with Reagan. But Reagan also was representative of the business lobby and particularly of the tech business lobby. Like Reagan comes out of the kind of uh, Stanford mafia, the Palo Alto mafia. And there were a lot of tech companies who were really angry about IBM and AT&T who, you know, one was standing on the chest of, of the tech industry and the other one was, was kneeling on its throat. And they really wanted some space opened up. And so Reagan's advisors got together and they said, which one of these are we going to break up so that the tech industry can have room to breathe? And which one will generate the least blowback from the ideologues who back us? And what they decided was that AT&T, because it had been a regulated monopoly, could be broken up and that breakup could be waved away as a corrective for the years in which the state intervened in the market. That IBM really wasn't a company. It was more like a kind of hypertrophied government ministry. And that this was just actually part of the program of creating small government, breaking up AT&T, whereas IBM was allowed to, to slip off the hook after 12 years. Um, and AT&T for a while really behaved itself. Uh, they were really, the baby bells were quite shook up by the, the breakup. And we got modems, right? That's where modems came from, was that era in which telcos stopped bending heaven and earth to stop people from establishing services between themselves without the phone company in the middle getting a piece of it. You know, when AT&T rolled out caller ID, it was like a buck 99 a month to find out who was calling you. And that was because you couldn't add caller ID to the network without altering the software at the central office because all, all the calls had to be routed through the central office. You couldn't just build a caller ID box that was the, like the, the Corey bat signal and I'd mail the other one to you. And then when I called you, a little red light would blink beside your phone and you know that it was me. We needed AT&T's cooperation and AT&T collected rent on that, on that cooperation. Uh, but like nobody ever tried to do that with email. Right. Like you don't have to pay an extra dollar ninety nine a month to know who's emailed you before you double click on the message. You just get the list and you don't have to click on the message if the email is from a Nigerian prince or whatever. Um, and so the the breakup of AT&T really did some good, but it was the last hurrah of antitrust. And so as the baby bells started to recover from the trauma of being broken up and started to eye each other amorously and consider hookups, um, the DOJ just looked the other way and it let them merge and remerge and re-remerge until we got today's, I don't know, quadropoly of, of giant carriers, uh, all of which are in some way descended from those baby bells. So how does adversarial interoperability or uh, ComCom, competitive uh, compatibility? Compatibility. How does that come into play uh, in trying to defeat or undermine the, the monopolies. Yeah. Um, well, you know, one of the ways that the tech sector is able to abuse you is by depriving you of choice, 
right? And there's lots of ways to deprive you of choice. So one we talked about is to eliminate competitors. So think of like um, Mark Zuckerberg at 2.30 in the morning emailing his CFO to say, look, I know you're angry that I want to give Instagram all this money to buy them, but you have to understand people like Instagram better than Facebook and they're leaving. So we just need to buy Instagram. So when they leave Facebook, they remain Facebook users, basically what he said. And then like half an hour later, he sent another email, clearly having spoken to the general counsel uh, that was like very stiff and formal. It was like, you know, Bob, uh, in a, in, for avoidance of doubt and just to let you know, I certainly did not mean that we should uh, form a monopoly and forestall upon competition. Uh, I am a great believer in competition. It is the American way of life. Uh, yours truly, Marcus J. Zuckerberg, Esquire, right? Like it was just like this really, it's like, it was like, uh, you know, someone in a uh, Korean War hostage video extolling the virtues of uh, of, of um, Chairman Mao or something. Uh, and um, if they can deprive you of choice, they can beat you up and not worry about you leaving. Um, the more it costs you to leave, the worse they can treat you without you going. And they don't do it merely because they're sadists, although probably some of them are. Uh, they do it because they can shift value from themselves to you. You know, like the more videos YouTube sticks in your video feed, or the more ads, rather, Google's, uh, YouTube sticks in your video feed, the more of your time you are trading for a video, right? Um, and if they can make it so you can't skip the video and also make it so that there's some video you need to watch that's on YouTube, like maybe it's, you know, important classroom videos or political videos or whatever, um, they, they can kind of titrate how much abuse they can mete out, which is to say how much value they can acquire to themselves. Now, one of the things that interoperability does is it creates a, a countersink to that, to that um, take it or leave it offer, right? If, uh, if the price of leaving Facebook is partly that you have to leave behind all the photos you uploaded to Facebook. And in the DOJ or the FTC's case against Facebook, in the docket, there's a memo that the creator of the Facebook photos product sent to Mark Zuckerberg explaining that they're going to make this product where you can put your photos in, but you can't get them out again. So that if people are tempted to leave and go to Google+, which they thought people liked better than Facebook, they might stay because they're as much as they like Google+, better than Facebook, uh, they didn't want to give up their family photos. And so if that's what's stopping you from, from leaving Facebook, the thought of giving up your photos, then an interoperability tool, which we could mandate on them, we could say to Facebook, you must give people their photos in a machine-readable form. And, you know, they, on demand, you have to give them a link that they can use to download them. Um, that is a way to lower those switching costs and discipline the firm, make them treat you better. And if the discipline doesn't take, if, they, if their hubris outweighs their, their self-preservation, then you can leave. You can go somewhere else. Um, but in addition to this kind of mandatory interoperability, you know, where we, we tell companies you have to do it this way, the building inspector comes through and says, sorry, every light socket has to be a standard light socket that accepts a standard light bulb. The, the contractor can't sneakily install one that requires you to buy their own special light bulbs. You know, if, that, if, that's, the, if that's the rule, um, we could also have another rule, which is the right to unilaterally adapt the technology in ways that either aren't contemplated by a mandate or that the company is ignoring even though it has a mandate and thumbing its nose at enforcers. So like if you bought a pair of running shoes and they said um, you may only use Nike shoelaces with these Nike shoes, uh, you could just unlace those shoes and put some binder twine in there and it wouldn't be any of Nike's business. With digital, it's not the same. With digital, Apple can say you can only install apps from the App Store uh, on your iPhone and you can't just unilaterally override that choice. Again, trafficking in a tool that bypasses the firmware locks on that phone is a DMC 1201 violation punishable by five years in prison and a $500,000 fine. Um, and so restoring that right, the right to just reverse engineer things, to scrape, to use bots, to do other things that allow you to reconfigure your own technology, to get your data out of a service or to leave a service and continue talking to the people who were left behind. You know, we forget this, but when Facebook first popped up and became a, a, a service that was open to the general public. It was originally just for American college kids. You needed like a .edu address for it. When they opened up their doors to the general public, their pitch was, sure, we know you love MySpace, 
but it's owned by a crapulent, evil, senescent Australian billionaire called Rupert Murdoch, and he's spying on you from asshole to appetite. Come and hang out over here on Facebook. We're the service that will never spy on you. But, you know, that wasn't the whole pitch. Right? They didn't say, oh, come hang out on Facebook and wait for your friends to come to their senses and just, like, admire our excellent privacy policy while, while you're waiting for it. They said, here's a bot. Uh, if you give that bot your login and password for MySpace, it's going to go to MySpace several times a day, check to see if there are any messages waiting for you, make a copy of them and put them in your Facebook inbox. And then you can reply to them and it'll push them back out again. That's adversarial interoperability. When you unilaterally add some new feature to an existing service without permission from the uh, original manufacturer in a way that benefits you and harms them. And uh, it's something that all of the big tech companies used in their own history, they would none of them would have attained scale without it. And it's something that they all agree no one should ever do to them. Uh, like every pirate, they want to be an admiral. Now, adversarial interoperability is a giant mouthful of a word. Um, and the acronym AI is already taken. And so at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, we started calling it ComCom for competitive compatibility. It's a lot easier to say, it's a lot easier to write, uh, it's a lot easier to pronounce. Uh, it's a lot easier to spell. So, so ComCom is what we call this. But it's just that whole suite of guerrilla warfare tactics. You know, um, there's been a couple of, I'm sure you know, there's been a couple of experiments with interoperability in the UK and in the EU. And one of them was called MyData, M-I-D-A-T-A. And, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> you know, I've been trying to, I was trying to look up what had been done with it in recent years. And it seems to have mostly been used in open banking, which is the other big one. Uh, mm -hmm. The idea was to make it easier for people to not only shift from one bank account to another, but to, for them to upload their data into third-party services that will give them a broader picture of their finances. And as I understand it, that works fairly well. I'm not interested in using it myself. But mm -hmm. um, one of the difficulties that popped up very early on was you can get your data out of something, but you don't necessarily have any way to use it at the destination. And that yeah. strikes me as, as the sort of, that's sort of the soft underbelly of your argument is, is, is being able to do something with it once you've gotten it out. So you're right. That is definitely a problem with data portability. I mean, that it's a, it's a good set of contrasts, right? Because like, yeah, you can get your data out of Facebook uh, under the GDPR, but there isn't a service that will, that you can then upload it to that will uh, replace Facebook for you that will that lower those switching costs. Whereas banking for all of its demerits still has some competition. And the, those banking services do work extraordinarily well. It is really the matter of one click to go to a comparison shopping site and say, hey, who's going to like pay me the most interest and give me the best deal based on all the things that I have. And, you know, uh, banking is one of those things like like mobile phone contracts where there's so many little variations like, oh, we, well, we, we it's, you know, our voice calls are really cheap, but our texts are really expensive and our data is really cheap, but not when you roam and not after 8 p.m. Or if you go over your limit, then it costs you five times as much. And it's just really hard to figure out what, what's the best deal for you. And those comparison shopping sites are actually uh, really good for telling you how to save more money and the data portability part is really good for letting you uh, just cut over really easily and I believe there's even in the in the back system I think there's a, a means of doing forwarding addresses as well so if you switch banks and someone sends you a payment it gets forwarded from your old bank to your new one for some period I'm not sure if that's backs or the European system but one of them has this mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, so all of that is like, it works really well, but it, it's because there's a competitive market. So what I'm talking about when I talk about ComCom is not just data portability, it's it's interoperability. So it's it's not just like, hey, here's a list of all your friends on MySpace, go hang out and admire that list on Facebook while you wait for those friends to come to their senses. It's like, here is interoperability, real-time data exchange between Facebook and MySpace so that after you leave, you don't have to wait for your friends to show up. You don't have to wait for you know the, them to come to their senses. You're not just uploading your data to, um, to Facebook from MySpace. You are maintaining your connections from Facebook to MySpace. That's the, that's the really powerful uh, uh, model. And that's the one that really makes the difference because it means that you can switch and you can switch back and it's, it's just really easy. And, and, you know, the, it's not consequential, right? You, you make a change and then you decide that you made the wrong change. You can change back again. It's, it's more like number portability. 
Uh, and number portability is one of those things that has been, again, like a, a, an absolute success, right? Um, we all remember when there was a time when, you know, your, your mobile carrier would lock you both, lock up both your phone number and your phone. So if you quit your carrier, you had to give up both of them. Uh, and, and eliminating both of them really disciplined phone companies. I mean, they're still terrible, but they were much more terrible in the days when they didn't have to worry about you leaving because they could hold uh, your ability to speak to the people that mattered most in, in the world to you hostage. Uh, so there are people developing, uh, well, you have Mastodon, you have the Fediverse, you have ActivityPub. It seems almost like what you might call a cooperative compatibility uh, trying to build a system that operates the, the way that we might ideally have developed it right up front if, if uh, uh, hotter heads hadn't prevailed. Mm -hmm. So what are the chances that providing this kind of alternative could unseat uh, like Facebook, uh, X, the various uh, uh, more concentrated systems and actually, I mean, to me, it seems like people might rather not be on one big centralized system, but they might mm -hmm. rather be in a neighborhood kind of system where there's people that they know and can hang out with, kind of like the well, you know, we're both members of the well, you know how mm -hmm. that is. Um, so, but, but what do you think about the possibility for, for that to really prevail, that whole movement toward more federated systems? So the thing you have to remember here is that the value of these services goes up based on the number of people that you know that are already using them. So they have a really hard bootstrapping problem. It's not enough if, if for people to leave, say, Mastodon or Facebook or leave uh, Twitter or Facebook and go to Mastodon or Diaspora. Um, it, it's not enough for those to be better. They have to be so much better that it's worth giving up your connection to the people who don't switch over with you. And as there's more fragmentation with Blue Sky and Threads and so on, that, that goes double because even if people agree with you that it's time to leave Twitter, they might not agree with you that the place to go is, is Mastodon. And so you might not be able to continue to talk to them. And so this is why it's not enough to build an alternative. It is important to have an alternative, right? Remember how in number portability or data portability for finance, the existence of the alternative is what makes the data portability valuable. But you also have to have a low switching cost, right? It, it, if, if, there are, if there were lots and lots of phone companies, but switching phone companies meant throwing away your $800 phone and losing... Uh, the ability of everyone you know to reach you, um, then you might stay with your phone company even if they're very bad and even if the other phone companies are really good, right? That, that, that lock-in uh, is uh, a powerful force against the ability of alternatives to discipline the market. And so it's important that we also address ourselves to lock-in. It's not enough that we address ourselves to alternatives. The existence of those alternatives really does tell you that it's possible to have a better way of doing it. That's one of the things that's really important because the the zap that big tech wants to put on your head is the Margaret Thatcher zap, where you know she was famous for saying there is no alternative, right? You want to talk to your friends? Well, of course we're going to spy on you. You want to search the web? Yeah, of course you're going to be surveilled. You want to have a phone that has software that just works? Well, of course, we're going to take 30 cents out of every dollar that every software vendor makes. And there's no way to imagine it otherwise. You might as well ask for water that's not wet, right? They, they want you to think that if you, if you like talking to your friends, then you must like surveillance. And if you don't, you're just being childish and irrational. It's like saying you like chocolate pudding, but you don't like the calories. Well, well for, a lot of, for a lot of people, it's not just talking to their friends. It's also like if you look at Twitter, Twitter was incredibly popular with people who wanted to to see the daily output and thinking of journalists sure. that they cared about or professionals experts whatever yeah, follow people that matter to you all of those things be in touch with your customers i think a lot of people use facebook for their customers or people who aren't their friends but are socially important to them like um all the other parents in your kids little league team so that you can organize carpools right whatever it is that that these things matter to you for if you're not going to give them up unless 
the 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 conditions are so bad on the old system uh, that it's worth giving up all the value that you got. You know, I, I might. My grandmother was a Soviet refugee. She'd been a child soldier in the siege of Leningrad. She got inducted into the Red Army. My grandfather knocked her up. And then after the war, they, they had been in Azerbaijan and they, they went west, got to Frankfurt and took a boat to Canada. And the rest of her family stayed in the Soviet Union. And they didn't stay because they liked it. It was actually a very hard life for them. But the cost of leaving was just too high for them. And the cost of leaving was each other because they couldn't all go at once. And so they just stayed even though in the years that followed my grandmother had uh, in every respect a superior life materially emotionally in terms of her security and her needs than the family she left behind and they all could have left in the same moment as she did but they couldn't they couldn't coordinate their departure and so they stayed and so it's like the existence of better places tells you that the reason the place that you're in sucks is not because there's no way that it could be better, but because the people who made it are either incompetent or malicious. That is really important, but it's not enough. It also has to be easy to go. Uh, and when it's easy to go, then you get the, the, the confluence of both worlds, right? The existence proof of something better and the um, uh, ease for switching into it if, if it appeals to you. <laughs> One of the arguments I've seen against interoperability as a uh, viable idea is is that it hinders innovation. And you know the prime example that people come up with is email, where everything everybody is interoperable, although some of the security arrangements make it make it harder and harder for an independent server to survive. Mm -hmm. um, but nothing has changed. Nothing much has changed in email in 30 years. Now you could sort of, you know, some of the interfaces on some of the email clients have changed. But you know, I regard that as an economic problem more than a um, more than an innovation problem because it, it stopped being in anybody's business interest to improve email. I mean. I don't even know if I accept the premise, right? I think about my email 30 years ago. So 1992, 1993, uh, it was command line. It capped out at about 25K. Uh, it didn't have inline previews. Uh, and um, I uh, couldn't reach most people. There was no encryption in transit. There was no encryption from end to end. Uh, like all of those things are significantly improved. And I, I mean, you could ask yourself, like, what are the technical improvements in uh, comparable messaging services? So say uh, the private message environment in Twitter and in Facebook um, or iMessage. Well, email is a vastly superior uh, product to any of those because you can keep archives and you can... Yeah. Sure. You can mark things unread. Yes. You can have styled text. Uh, Twitter won't let you attach something that isn't a JPEG or a PNG or a GIF, I think. Uh, like, I, I mean, there are there are problems with emails, but like the, the a, a lack of innovation is not one of them. I don't feel under-innovated in my email. Um, no, but that's the example people come up with. And, and you know, right. I, I mean... I was wondering also, in you don't seem to engage with the work of Ian Brown and Dawa Karf, who've done a lot of thinking about interoperability. Unfortunately, I can't say, I, can't, I haven't read their stuff recently enough to remember what they say. But. Oh, I, I think, uh, Ian, I, I agree entirely with, with their work. Um, uh, if I didn't cite it, it was an oversight. There's nothing in it. I don't think there's anything in this book that runs counter to Ian's views, except maybe we have a quibble at the periphery about um, the order in which the Digital Markets Act should impose interoperability mandates on other firms. So Ian is quite sanguine, I think, about um, European uh, the European Commission ordering end-to-end -end encrypted messaging tools to federate, to, to interoperate. I'm concerned that while there's a good reason to do this, that it's it's harder than it looks because subtle defects in end-to-end -end encryption can expose billions of users to information attacks, and those information attacks are really consequential. You know, you think about the NSO group weaponizing a tiny defect in WhatsApp and using it to lure Jamal Khashoggi to his death. Uh, and uh, the European Commission decided that the first thing the Digital Markets Act is going to make interoperable is messaging. 
I and I I don't think messaging is like the big problem, right? I think um, people are okay multi-homing different message tools on their device. They're okay with having some friends on uh, on Twitter or on uh, on on iMessage and some friends on Signal or whatever. It's, I don't think pe this is like the pain point for people. I think social media is much more significant, um, and I think like to the extent that they um, that they got it wrong, it's because uh, they just can't imagine federated social media. I mean, the rule came about before the growth of Mastodon anyway, but you know, th these are people who experience interoperable messaging all the time, right? If you're like a German member of the European Parliament sending a SMS to a Dutch colleague who's holiday making in Spain while you're in Brussels, you know that the networks, the devices, and the protocols can all interoperate. The problem is you're doing it over SMS, which is like a terrible system that is so past its sell-by date, needs to be killed with fire. And uh, none of these people are old enough or weird enough to have used FidoNet or Usenet. And none of them are cutting edge enough to have seen Mastodon when they were starting to this work. And so they just were just like, Federated social media, I can't even imagine what that is. Federated messaging, I use that every day. And so they were just like, how much harder can messaging be if it's encrypted? And the answer is a lot harder, a lot harder to make it interoperable. The thing you, is, you, you want to kill about... SMS. You want to kill SMS, and it's the one thing that actually works on every phone. That is the really interoperable Yeah, but it fails thing. badly. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, but it fails really badly. It, it, right? That's the yeah, problem. Yeah, it may, but, you know... I can't, I can't talk to my sister because she only uses FaceTime, you know? Right. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I, I agree. But like the answer to that, I mean, it's like um, wanting to get rid of DDT, even though it's the only thing that uh, keeps mosquitoes out of your bedroom at night. Like I do, like I get it, right? Mosquitoes are terrible. They spread malaria. They're the, they're the most lethal animal on earth. Uh, but we still had to get rid of DDT. <laughs> like, and then we need some other mosquito abatement program, right? I'm not saying that we should then accept the mosquitoes. I'm just saying that DDT is too high. You talk about interoperability. I like to interoperate with my things that I purchased from these big tech companies, but they seem to have engineered many of them to where you have no control over that uh, purchase other than just you know paying for it and using it if you want to change it or modify you want to modify it you want to repair it yourself which i love to do i'm one of those people that just enjoys ripping something apart and making it work differently or making it work at all if it breaks you have to take it back to the makers what is the solution is right to repair going yeah. to actually occur so I would say that it's actually worse than you just described because it's not merely that you can't change or repair or alter the device after you bring it home, but they can, right? That I call this the Darth Vader MBA, right? I have altered the deal. Pray I don't alter it further. You know, you buy a device that has six features and then they field update it and it's only got five, right? You, you buy a printer that will accept third-party ink and they ship you a deceptively labeled security update and the security that it updates is the security of their shareholders' bank accounts because all it does is patch your printer so it no longer accepts third-party ink. Um, and so it's it's actually worse than that. It, it is not merely that you're prohibited. It's that they, are, they have unlimited permission. And you're getting at something really important here that I call twiddling. So digital tools, they have this intrinsic flexibility. It's one of the reasons that interoperability is so interesting in the context of digital, because the only computer we know how to make is the Turing Complete Universal von Neumann machine, the, the computer that can run every program we know how to write. There's no way to make a computer that only runs programs that make the shareholders happy. You can always write a program that makes the users happy, even at the expense of the shareholders. Uh, and that flexibility is something that the tech platforms and the tech giants absolutely love when it works in their favor. Uber loves the fact that they can alter the payout schedule for drivers from moment to moment and second to second. They have this whole thing, uh, uh, Vina Dubo calls it algorithmic wage discrimination, where they try to get uh, the pickers, which are what the drivers who call themselves, who are picky, call themselves pickers. Um, they try to make them into ants, which is what the drivers who take every ride call themselves. And the way that uh, pickers are transformed into ants is that the wage pricing algorithm offers you more money if you've historically been more picky for taking the same ride. But as you become less selective, the, the, the wage per mile goes down. 
And if you become more selective, if you're like, ooh, that's dipped too low and you back off from it, then the wage is increased. And it keeps going like this, like a fish being played out on a line until uh, you are reeled all the way in. You've dropped whatever it was that you were doing as a side hustle that let you be so picky. And now you're, you're an ant. Uh, and, um, you know, this is not dissimilar to what Facebook did to the publishers, where at first they said, hey, if you just post your content, uh, just a little excerpt and a link, we'll show it to people, even people who never asked to see it, and we'll create a, a free traffic funnel. And then they started to dial up how much of your content needed to be in the post before it gets shown to people. And if you were like, oh, well, now it's becoming a substitute. If I'm going to stop using Facebook, they would suddenly recommend the last thing you posted to a million people and you'd come back again, playing you out on the line. This digital flexibility, this ability to twiddle the knobs, change the rules in the back end, very powerful for firms. And they want to use that without constraint. They don't want to be constrained by privacy, labor, or consumer protection law. But at the same time, that digital flexibility, that twiddling, is something they want to take away from us, right? They, they get to touch their knobs all day long. We're not allowed to touch the knobs, too. Those are their knobs. And, and so uh, we are, we are um, uh, constrained by copyright law, by trademark, by cybersecurity, and people who want to help us do this, right? If you wanted to write, say, a counter algorithm for Uber drivers where you could, uh, you and your, your fellow drivers could run an app that uh, did random sampling of the uh, rates being offered by Uber within a region right now and turned down rides until those rates went up across a group of Uber drivers, which is the kind of thing like in other markets where you have this kind of digital uh, offer and put thing like like uh, stock market trading bots is totally normal. Um, they will, uh, you know, they'll call you a tortious interferer with contract, a, a violator of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, a copyright infringer, a trademark infringer, and so on. And, and so, you know, th that um, is, the, is the system under which we live. Uh, total flexibility for them, no flexibility for us. And repair is, a, is, a, is an aspect of this, right? They are using... Things like um, embedded uh, systems, little system on a chip, uh, computers that are like, you know, cost a quarter and are the size of your thumbnail. And they put them on individual components within car engines and phones and other devices. And after the, the part is swapped into the device, the device won't recognize the part and start working until an authorized technician types in an unlock code to say this was a repair performed by the official repair depot and not by the user or by some party they nominated themselves. This is even in ventilators. It was a huge problem during lockdown for, for med techs at hospitals trying to maintain their, their ventilator stock. And um, the thing that stops a third party from just making a tool that lets you bypass this unlock stage is the law, right? It's, it's the DMCA, it's Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, contract law, and so on. And um, you know, a lot of the right to repair stuff has focused on creating affirmative duties to firms uh, to facilitate repair, you know, distribute your manuals, make parts available and so on. But um, that's mostly because the laws that these firms use to prevent repair are federal laws and the, they preempt state laws. And so the states can't make repair laws that require them to just get out of the way, right? Like we, we as a an economy and as a people are handily capable of locating replacement parts for devices, even if the manufacturer doesn't make them available. In, all, in a perfect world, the manufacturer would. But if the manufacturer doesn't, well, you know, like there are um, oceans of iPhone parts, real Apple iPhone parts that enter the U.S. every day from the Far East, where um, phones that are taken to uh, service depots not owned by Apple for repair and determined to be beyond repair are sent to be disassembled and turned into parts. Now, Apple engraves microscopic Apple logos on those parts. And when Customs intercepts a shipment coming back in, Apple argues that their trademark allows them to prevent the reimportation of original Apple parts for Apple phones uh, that independent repairers will use to keep those phones running. They say that because there's a tiny Apple logo and because the part is of unknown quality at the moment, because it was in a broken device that was then broken up for parts, that there is a risk that a naive consumer will encounter the Apple logo on a substandard part 
and that they will come to think less of Apple as a result, and that this gives them a trademark cause of action to prevent this reimportation. So the reason the states are saying, Apple, you've got to provide parts, is not because we can't provide the parts without Apple. It's because only the feds can make Apple cut it off, cut it out with this bullshit at the border to ensure a steady supply of parts. Um, and so I think that when you understand this kind of rail politique of like state law, federal law, the different powers, the existing uh, laws, and so on, you understand what the barriers have been to right to repair. But a federal repair law would do wonders. And I think that there's a, a real tailwind for it. I think that there's a lot of people in America who are grossly offended at the monopolization of repair. And they're starting to understand that monopolization of repair isn't just about gouging you for parts, gouging you for labor. It's also about deciding when your device is beyond repair. And one of the things that Apple really values about its repair monopoly is if you take an old phone to an Apple service depot, like an Apple store, and say, I want it fixed, they'll say, oh, it's beyond repair. Um, it, and and uh, tell you what, though, we'll give you a great deal on an, on an upgrade and you can trade this one in and we'll recycle it. Well, Apple's recycling program is called a shredder. Apple, uniquely among all major electronics manufacturers, shreds everything that it's given to recycle so that no parts can be harvested out of it. Now, in 2019, Tim Cook gave an address to his shareholders uh, to, to, uh, to talk about the end of the 2018 year, where he said, our biggest risk right now is that our devices are so robust and our users don't see any reason to upgrade them that they just keep repairing them after they drop them and break the screen or after the battery uh, runs down. And um, we're not selling devices anymore. We used to sell a new phone every 18 months to our customers. Now we're selling them every three years. We need to figure out a way to force people to upgrade. Well, monopolizing repair is a way to create uh, just uh, canyons full of immortal e-waste that our children and grandchildren will have to deal with and to sell more phones to people who are happy with the phone they have and just want a new screen or a new battery. So there's one point I was getting into earlier, and I, I apologize for kind of going back to something that we've got past. No, it's okay. But I was making the point about how we have these huge, or had these huge centralized, uh, so we still have Facebook, X, who knows, you know. But the idea is you get everybody onto one system, and it's totally centralized. And you can see all the celebrities, you can see all the journalists, you can see all of your friends, supposedly, you know, you, I mean, there are algorithms that uh, intervene in what you see and don't see, but, but to an extent you feel connected mm -hmm. to all these people and people think that they really want that. But is that what we really want? I mean, to me, it's like, maybe we're trying to build big, maybe we're trying to carry something forward from the era of mass media that we don't really need. Uh, Jeff Jarvis was talking to us recently about um, how before Gutenberg and before print, people were mostly just kind of conversational and information passed through conversation. Mm -hmm. And then we had the print era and we had hierarchies that emerged and concepts of authority that emerged and, and uh, uh, there was a whole evolution that led to a lot of what we have now bureaucracies and and uh power at, focused at the top and that sort of thing and the internet gives us an opportunity to get back to being more conversational and maybe it also gives us the opportunity to redefine our social space as something smaller and maybe a bit more intimate ways that we can kind of reorganize this stuff. And, and I mean, what do you think of that? Is that a possibility? Does that, does that make sense as, as a potential for evolution going forward? I like the idea of that being an and and not an or. Um, I, I'm not a, I mean, Neil Postman's a, was a smart guy, but amusing ourselves to death, I think is, um, it's, it's too simplistic. Uh, I, I, I think that uh, there are ways in which people's lives are immeasurably improved by being able to find others who are outside of their geographic region or their uh, ethnic group or some other constraint that would have historically constrained who you heard from and being able to cross-pollinate with other people uh, and, and follow them and follow what they have to say. I mean, John, you and I met 
because I was a kid from Toronto running up long distance bills, calling a server in San Francisco while that you were speaking to from Austin. Yeah. Right. And the likelihood that we would have all met uh, without that is pretty slim. And so I'm not prepared to throw the idea of, you know, being able to choose who you pay attention to from among every person alive today under the bus in favor of, uh, a kind of faithfulness to localness. I mean, localness is really important. Don't get me wrong. I, I you know, I, I know the Robert Putnam bowling alone arguments. I think knowing your neighbors is also a wonderful thing. But well, it doesn't have know, to be local. I mean, it could be that you have a community that's global, but it doesn't have to be big. I, it's the bigness of it that I'm wondering about. So I guess the question is, how do you find the people that matter to you? on all those communities unless there's some way in which they're joined together at least as a search function. Yeah, I mean, the, oh, bigness, point, of, right? yeah. the bigness of Twitter was one of the, th I regarded as having been incredibly valuable during the acute phase of the pandemic where I could follow mm -hmm. worldwide medical experts. I had I had a whole COVID list of people who I thought were worth, worth checking in every day. And I learned an enormous yeah. amount and I think I was kept safer because of it. I think that's a really good example. And and so, you know, I, I, I agree that like context collapse is real and like it can be awkward and weird to have your neighbor talking about, um, you know, the, the whether or not there's a problem with raccoons knocking over the trash can. And then the <laughs> next message is, you know, I don't know, like the president of the United States, right? Like it, it that is that is a weird kind of context collapse. I mean, I've always been very um, comfortable with it. Uh, we all know uh, David Weinberg and his brilliant maxim that everything is miscellaneous. Uh, Absolutely, a yeah. The, Absolutely. A lot of the categories we've put things in historically have been, um, you know, driven by the the tyranny of physicality that things could only be in one place. A book could only be shelved on one shelf. Uh, and I'm okay with juxtaposition. I find juxtaposition actually to be a super useful uh, way to stimulate my thinking. Um, I was once at an Easter con in Bradford in the UK where Tim Powers was the guest of honor. And Tim's a great uh, writer of conspiratorial secret histories. He was one of Philip K. Dick's proteges. Right on. He writes these wonderful novels. Uh, and and he was being interviewed by someone who'd written a, a very big scholarly tome on his his um, his whole corpus, and the interviewer was like, "Tell me about your method." And he said, "Well, look, I um, if I want to compose a secret history, contrasting the lives of two people, I make a timeline, and any time they're in the same place or doing the same thing, I ask, what if that weren't a coincidence?" And I take that juxtaposition. I just weave a story that that tells that, and it creates this kind of marvelous credibility because it really just feels like it could be real. Because it could be, right? Like they're they they were in the same place, they were doing the same thing at the same time. And and I find as an imaginative exercise, putting things beside each other that don't necessarily go next to each other is really interesting. Now. I stipulate that I am different from a lot of people. Uh, and, you know, I dropped out of four undergraduate programs. I am 10, inch, uh, 10 miles deep and one inch wide. Uh, and, you know, my, my version of, you know, uh, organizing information, like, has been defined by my life in blogging, where I've written, I think, now 60,000 posts about everything. You know, I'm, uh, for me, like, the whole earth catalogs were too rigid. <laughs> because they sorted things thematically, you know. Um, so I'm I'm uh, much I'm much less concerned about this. But I also think that there's like no reason that the tooling can't support people who want to have lists, who want to have categories, who want to have groups, and people who want to have everything blended together, rubbing up against each other, and sparking uh, new kinds of interest. David also had a book called Small Pieces, loosely joined. Lucy joined. Yeah. Uh, we have reached the end of our hour, and this is sad. And I also want to make sure everybody knows that I was not advocating for everybody to join next door. <laughs> that would be bad. But thank you so much, well, Corey. I, can, I, can I mention yeah, just yeah, a couple sure. of things about the book before we go? Right on. So, one thing I want to make clear is that the last half of the book is really about um, 
kind of shovel-ready ways of, of constructing robust, administratable policy, things that we could do and that we could work with, uh, and that it's not just identifying a problem. It's, it's describing something we can all demand the next time there's a crisis. You know, as everyone's best friend Milton Friedman says, in, in times of uh, crisis, ideas can move from the periphery to the center. Uh, that was how he got his agenda through. It's how I think we can get ours through. And the other thing I want to mention, you, you said, oh, I write a lot of books. I do write a lot of books. I wrote nine books during lockdown. And the next one's coming out in a couple of weeks. It's called The Lost Cause. It's a science fiction novel, an environmental novel set here in Burbank where I live. And it's about uh, a world that's a generation into a Green New Deal where we're really taking this stuff seriously. And then there's a counter-revolution. And it's about how people go from fighting for a better world to defending that world and what it means to have these contesting visions of the future uh, and and um, what you do with the losers of a just revolution because I think that's something none of us have ever figured out. Well, thank you so much, Corey. Thank and you. Hopefully we can get back together and talk about that book. Yeah, we, we appreciate oh, your I visits. I, I always feel smarter after uh, your <laughs> Well, what a treat to see all three of you. Thank you so much for, for this chance to talk to you. Uh, great to see you. You can stay in touch with Plutopia at Plutopia.io. On Facebook, look for at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future.